Hello, my name's Adrian Goldberg and welcome to Byline Radio, or if you're listening on Catch Up, to the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times, it's what the papers don't say, what radio doesn't report and what telly doesn't tell you. This time, Byline Times Westminster correspondent Adam Bienkoff on the Tory leadership race that will decide our next Prime Minister, Truss versus Sunak. Happy to take your calls as well and have a bit of an Ask Adam session if you are listening live on Byline Radio via Twitter Spaces. Before that, a quick reminder that Byline Radio Radio and the Byline Times podcast are funded by subscriptions to the Byline Times, our brilliant monthly newspaper. We're not bankrolled by oligarchs or non-doms. We can report without fear or favour and hold the rich and the powerful to account because our funding comes from ordinary subscribers, from people like you. So if you can in these I know it's very difficult times, but please subscribe to the Byline Times if you can. You get more details at bylinetimes.com. That's our news-breaking website, bylinetimes.com. And if you have already subscribed, thank you. As I say, we're encouraging uh, as many uh, of you as want to to ask Adam any questions that you've got about Sunak, about trusts, and uh, if you've got any comments as well, feel free. We're going to make this, hopefully, a bit more of a, a phone-in than we normally do. But Adam is here, and he's full of wisdom and knowledge and expertise. That's right, isn't it, Adam? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Adam, oh, um, uh, Adam, yeah, just uh, is, is there any doubt, by the way, as, as we're debating Truss versus Sunak, is there any doubt that Truss is going to win, by the way? I think there's very little doubt. Um, we've had a lot of, we've had, not had that many uh, opinion polls of Conservative Party members, and it's not the, the easiest electorate to do opinion polls on, but they overwhelmingly do show um, that Truss has a big lead over Rishi Sunak. And that's also what um, Conservative MPs have, are saying privately. Um, and so I don't think there's much doubt at all. It, normally in, in these elections, there's a sort of 60-40% bias in favour of whichever candidate is seen as the most right-wing. And in this election, that's Liz Truss, which is somewhat bizarre given her political background, but that that, that is the case in this election. So it's not hugely surprising that she's got this big lead. Um it, it, of course, lot, many think you know polls can be wrong, and, and we, can, we could be completely wrong. But I think it would be a, a massive, massive upset if Sunak turns out to have won this. Yeah, uh, it's almost like it's a, a leadership contest taking place in a parallel universe. I mean, we've got mm. energy bills potentially going up to four thousand pounds. I mean, it, it's going to be devastating for many, many people in this country. And yet one of the key debates in the leadership debate has been tax cuts and the size of tax cuts. Yeah, it's been bizarre uh, following this contest. You know, as you say, we've got um, energy bills forecast, the price cap to go up to beyond £4,000 in, in January. We've got Bank of England saying we're heading into a sort of long and deep recession. Uh, interest rates hitting a 25-year high. And instead, we've had a com- uh, contest which is completely dominated, on the one hand, yes, by tax cuts, but also by this sort of bingo list of right-wing talking points on things like you know s- solar farms, uh, gender-neutral toilets, grammar schools, uh, civil service, you know, uh, grooming gangs, free speech at universities, you know, rather than the big issues that the vast majority of the public are really concerned about at the moment, which, as you say, are, is overwhelmingly the economy. 
Yeah, uh, Sunak has, in some cases, responded to the the tax cutting rhetoric, hasn't he? But he has suggested that he would offer more help to the poor and the vulnerable. I don't know whether that just reflects uh, an ideological difference or whether it's just the fact that, as the Chancellor of the Exchequer, you know, he's been closer to the seat of government and perhaps recognises the the political realities. I mean, she's been foreign secretary, so she's no she's no stranger to the cabinet. But perhaps yeah. he's been closer to where the real hard decisions have to be made. Yes, and, and I think it would have been hard for him, having uh, presided over some of the biggest tax rises for for decades, uh, brought the tax burden to its highest level for seventy years. For him to suddenly completely U turn on that in in this election, so I think he. He was kind of forced into taking that dividing line with trust. Um, but it, it has made it easy for her. Um, you know, Conservative Party members are very in favour of tax cuts. They tend to be older. They tend to be wealthier. They tend to, uh, And these things uh, are, are very popular with Conservative Party members. So it, it has made it easy for, for trust to, to win this contest, even though, as you say, it's not going to help the vast majority of people that are being affected um, by this economic crisis, uh, not least because... The people most affected don't pay tax or don't pay very much tax. Certainly not much in terms of income tax. Um, also pensioners as well. Um, and these are these are sort of issues that are just not being talked about during this contest uh, for whatever reason. Uh, as you mentioned, uh, Liz Truss seems to have, uh, if you like, been the Daily Mail candidate, hasn't she? There's mm-hmm. been, there's been the, the, as you say, there lots of discussion around uh, gender-neutral toilets, she evoked the so-called grooming gangs in places like Telford today. And, I mean, I've done a podcast with a, a, a woman, a, a doctor called Ella Cobain, you know, who has really punctured the Muslim grooming gangs narrative that was promoted in particular by the Times newspaper, but was avidly promoted by other right-wing newspapers as well. But nevertheless, the the, the sense that there were these grooming gangs out there and and there may well have been by the way i'm not saying that they they didn't exist but it it clearly didn't tell the whole story of child abuse in this country it was a very particular and partial prism through which to view that very serious story Uh, she's been the the person who has played to that particular gallery and Sunak as well, to be fair. I mean, he was asked about it at Hustings, I believe, two days ago. And he he was, if, if anything, went further than, than trust. And as you say, these are sort of daily mail talking points. And I think one, one question I've been asking during this campaign is who really are these two candidates talking to? Because they're clearly not talking to the public at large, who, as we say, are much more concerned about the economy. Um, it's also not entirely clear whether they're talking to Conservative Party members. A lot of polling that has been done suggests that although Conservative Party members are more right-wing than the general population, they do overwhelmingly care about the economy a lot more than, than what we've heard on this campaign. So it does make you think, well, why are they talking about all of these other issues which are really sort of minority issues? Um, I think one reason for that is if you've been in government for 12 years and everything is starting to go wrong, the economy is going wrong, public sector is, is starting to fall apart, then it makes a lot of political sense to try and change the subject and to talk about things where you can blame other people, whether it's trade unions, uh, trade union leaders or uh, university lecturers. But also, 
it, it can help to talk to what your real audience is, which in this case, it seems to be certain sections of the conservative supporting press and the issues that they are most focused on rather than the, the public or even the membership. Mm. Uh, Bav Dandikar in Manchester asks the question, how long do you think the Tories will last with trust in power, assuming she is elected and becomes prime minister? He's asking how long she would last and how long the Conservatives will... How, how long the Conservatives will last in power, I presume, in government with... with yeah, government. well, I mean, there was some talk before the leadership contest that we could have a, a sort of snap general election. They've massively rode away from that now, and, and Truss is openly saying, you know, it's not going to be before, uh, at least before before 2024, possibly uh, at the end of 2024. Will they win another general election? Well, it's, it's, it's possible. Um, the Conservatives lasted for 18 years uh, under Margaret Thatcher and, and John Major, um, but that's pretty unusual. Normally at this stage in the electoral cycle, you would expect there to be a change of government. Uh, New Labour only lasted, uh, I think, 13 years or 12 years. Um, so it would be pretty remarkable for them to to win an, what would be a fifth term for the Conservatives, uh, particularly when they have a, the economy as it is on the downturn, and when you have a leader like Liz Truss, who isn't massively well-known and isn't massively popular among the people that, that do know her. So I think it's a real be a real uphill struggle for the Conservatives to win the, the next general election. And I do think it's, on balance, an election which is Labour's to lose next time. Mm, mm-hmm. And I don't want to go off topic too much, of course, but uh, I know that uh, for the forthcoming print edition of the Byline Times, you have written about Labour and Keir Starmer, we might dedicate an entire episode of the podcast uh, to that or a, a live. But just briefly, I mean, following on from that logic, it, is Labour under Starmer likely to capitalise on that moment? Well, Labour have been, I mean, a lot of people have noticed have been quite quiet over this summer period. Keir Starmer um, has been away on holiday. Uh, haven't had a huge amount to say about the economic crisis um they haven't really a lot of the sort of loudest voices in labor uh, or in the labor wider labor movement haven't been keir starmer and they've been sort of beyond that i mean we've heard a lot from gordon brown this week for instance um we heard a lot from trade unions people like uh, trade union leaders like mick lynch in recent weeks and months uh, we haven't heard much from starmer so i don't think he has i don't think labor have really been capitalizing on it they haven't had much to say in terms of policy um starmer hasn't had much to say full stop um that's not to say that labor aren't in a good position to win the next election as i say i think they are they are in a a good position but you would expect at this point i mean it does feel almost like the sort of 1990s and the john major era you'd expect labor to be in a really commanding position when the government is in such a mess when the prime minister's just been forced out um and judging by the opinion polls and, and and everything else that we see labor although they're ahead they're not really in that commanding position that you might otherwise expect them to be. Well, let's try and talk about some of the policies that Truss and Sunak are promoting. I mean, we've had the notion that asylum seekers might be sent to Rwanda unsuccessful. So far, I think I'm saying Priti Patel's kind of flagship policy, designed, she says, to restrict and reduce the number of migrant boats crossing the channel. Have either of them commented on that and said where they stand on that? They have talked about it. It has come up in the hustings. Um, but they've been quite vague on what they're actually going to do. And Truss has, has repeatedly said that she would 
make Rwanda work, which is sort of a, an echo of make Brexit work. <laughs> um, but it's not clear exactly what you do. She's talked about reforming Britain's relationship with the uh, European Court of Human Rights. Um, but it, And she's talked about somehow clamping down on the ability of migrants coming to the UK, being able to access lawyers. Again, it, it's all quite vague, sort of so heavy on rhetoric, sort of, but quite light on actual policy differences. As we know, the policy isn't working. Uh, people haven't been deported. Uh, people aren't being deterred from crossing the channel. It has been, a, to date, a, a complete failure. And it's not entirely clear what she would do to change that, although she has suggested that she could try and broaden it out to cover other countries as well. But again, we, we don't know what the details of that are. We're right in saying, aren't we? They, no, no people have been successfully taken. That's right. People were put on flights, but the U- European Convention on Human Rights successfully intervened. And then we've had Suella Braverman, the uh, Attorney General, one of the early contenders anyway to be Prime Minister. She's obviously now out of the race, but again playing to this gallery, talking about the European Convention on Human Rights and how it, it should be countermanded by mm. British uh, by British laws and British judges. Is that part of the Sunak trust debate? It is, and it, it's part of playing to this idea that uh, of blaming the, the current crises that the, the country is in on outside forces, so whether it's or internal forces or outside forces, so whether it's the civil service undermining the government, stopping it from doing what they believe it should be doing, or whether it's European courts stopping them from doing what they're... It's, it's, it's trying to shift the blame after sort of 12 years of being in government, saying, yes, we accept, you know, things aren't going well. Yes, our immigration policy, our asylum policy isn't working, but it's not our fault. It's it's European, faceless European judges' fault. Um, so I think that's, that's what it's about. But, you know... In terms of actual, as I say, concrete changes to the policy that actually result in fewer people trying to cross uh, the channel in small boats, it's not clear to me that either Truss or Sunak really have any idea about what they what they would do to change that situation. One of Truss's big policies has been to reverse the increase in national insurance contributions, which Sunak as Chancellor introduced. I mean, obviously, that's quite canny, perhaps politically, in that Sunak can hardly say it's a bad idea. It was his initiative. But it was an initiative which had a thought behind it, wasn't it? It wasn't simply a tax-raising measure. Sunak's increase in national insurance contributions, obviously unpopular with some people, because it does mean effectively you're going to pay more tax, but had a very coherent idea behind it, which was that it would, in the long term, mean that social care costs in this country would be capped. And this was seen as an act of political bravery by both Sunak and Johnson at the time, because this has been a long talked about notion, both by Labour and Conservative, ultimately with the idea that people wouldn't have to sell their homes if in later life they developed dementia and needed social care or other some other condition which meant they needed full-time or long-term social care so the idea was that in the long term it will pay for your social care without having to sell your house that your care costs would be capped in the short term it was designed to reduce the queues for nhs procedures which have grown up during the pandemic now forgive me adam uh, you know uh, if i've missed this but has trust been asked then what will happen to the pledge on social care and what will happen 
to NHS queues if the national insurance contribution increase is reversed? Well, I've listened to almost all of the debates, and, and I'm sure somebody will correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't recall that being asked as a as a question. And you're right. I mean, this was this is an issue. To, I mean, to be fair, that that has dogged multiple governments has been sort of put on the back burner um, over the course of decades. This this time bomb of what to do to, with social care in this country. And uh, to, to, in Trust's defence, there was a manifesto commitment in the 2019 Conservative manifesto not to raise national insurance and they broke that so she she can say that she's just trying to implement the manifesto that she stood in the sort of democratic argument but that's fine but it's a it's a separate issue then as we all of her pledges on tax cuts yes you know conservative party members like tax cuts most people like the idea of paying less tax but there are consequences to that and when you've got uh, this social care time bomb when you've got massive waiting lists in the nhs and when you're taking away what was designed as, as a, a way of, of dealing with some of that, then you should be able to say in clear terms what you're going to do to replace that, how you're going to fund that. And so far, as with many of the other big issues facing the country, Trust simply hasn't, well, it's not even that she hasn't had an answer. She, she hasn't really even been asked about it so far. No, well, I, I mean, I, you know, I find that as a, a signal failure of our if you like, our Westminster coterie of journalists. But, of course, it's very difficult to get to trust. And, again, this has been raised by Sunak supporters that, like him or not, Sunak has put himself up to scrutiny by the likes of Andrew Neil, by the likes of Nick Robinson. Trust has not been interviewed by either of those, in inverted commas, political big beasts. So, uh, campaign hasn't had that intense level of scrutiny and you no. could argue she has sought to make it that way well i mean it's become a sort of worrying trend of of all campaigns in the sort of last 10 years or so the sort of conventional wisdom um among campaigners is that if you're ahead um and you can see logic to it but if you're ahead don't submit yourself to interviews um and it used to be the case that it was just something that you did you just would do the big interview of andrew neil or nick robinson or today program um and then sort of in the linton chris crosby era the sort of new conventional wisdom is that if you're ahead if you're going to win anyway why bother um and you can kind of see the argument for it but you know this isn't just about when she's going to win regardless if you know whether she does the andrew and neil interview or the nick Robinson, not she's she's likely to win but there's a sort of basic democratic uh duty if you're going to be prime minister to open yourself up to scrutiny and to ask answer uh, difficult questions and and Sunak, Sunak, to his credit, has done that, albeit, you know, he hasn't got much to lose. Um, but she hasn't so far. And I think there is there is a big question. I mean, previously, when Theresa May uh, became prime minister, uh, the the election cam- campaign for Conservative Party was curtailed and she was sort of, was sort of waved through. Um, and arguably, she didn't come under the sort of scrutiny that she should have done. And then she struggled when she was prime minister and, you know, we, we all know the difficulties she had when she was in post. And there's a chance that we can see something similar with, with Trust, who hasn't really been tested during this campaign. And when, when, if and when she does become prime minister, she could be found quite wanting. I was saying, that, Adam, that the big political issue of the day is energy bills. You're looking at the average working family paying £355 a month, it's estimated, compared to the current 
£164 a month. That's going to be a devastating increase for many families. So what are trusts? What are Sunak proposing to do about what I think what most commentators would say is the defining political question of the moment. The fact that the average household is going to be paying £355 a month for energy compared to £164 a month. That's a doubling. That's that's really going to frighten a lot of people. Well, the answer is 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 what, what, they, what they're saying about it, is very little. Um, I mean, Sunak has suggested that he would give some direct assistance and compared his actions on the on the furlough scheme and suggested that he would do something similar, but they're sort of lacking in specifics. But Truss, when she's been asked about this, has kind of tried to divert the question towards saying, well, my priority is tax cuts, and I don't see any point in taxing people money and then giving it back to them in in handouts but of course you know lots of people don't really pay much in the way of tax you know they don't earn enough or they're pensioners or they're on on some form of welfare and she hasn't really despite being asked about this many times given a clear answer of what she would she would actually do and you know as you say it's a it's a huge issue and there are people who are coming up with suggestions of what to to do about it um gordon brown uh, this week suggesting that you nationalize energy companies but of course that's something that trust opposes we've had suggestions of windfall taxes again that's something that trust opposes um we've suggested that there have been suggestions of moving towards renewable energy again that's something that trust opposes in, in, certainly in terms of solar farms she, she's repeatedly spoken bizarrely about sort of banning the use of solar farms on on agricultural land but it's not clear what she would actually do instead other than saying that she's in favor of fracking but then she puts the caveat in where local people support it well we know that there's virtually nowhere in the country where local people support fracking and certainly there's i couldn't think of a single conservative mp who would say that they would like to have fracking in their own area so the simple answer is not a great deal um, other than to, to repeat her talking point on lowering everybody's taxes. Lord Frost, the former Brexit minister, uh, has said that there's, there is no climate emergency. He's a big supporter of Liz Trust. And mm. she's described, uh, hasn't she, solar panels as, as paraphernalia. Yes, that's right. There's no, there's, there's no suggestion really from either of them, though. I mean, forgive me if I'm wrong about uh, Sunak and correct me if I'm wrong. No suggestion that there is a, a, a really serious attempt to grapple with climate change. No, and um, it is, that's, that's quite worrying. I mean, we had COP26 last year and we had a lot of warm, warm words from the government, but 2022 is on, on course to being one of the 10 warmest years on record. We had the warmest day on record in the UK ever in recent weeks. We've got water shortages, wildfires, and looking globally, it's... But, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a massive problem. And again, when you have these big issues and you've been in government for a long time and the, the possible solutions, whether they're, you know, a big shift towards renewables or whether it's nationalisation of energy companies, whatever it might be, these are big and difficult things to do. And there are things which conservative politicians don't tend to want to do. And so what do you do when you're, you're faced with a situation like climate change, which Yes, there are lots of things you could and should be doing as a government, but 
you know, it's something that's going to get worse regardless of what this government does. And so they feel that they can take an easy option and simply try and talk about other things instead. I mean, it's a weird thing, isn't it? Because, you know, that might get you through your election to your 162,000 Conservative Party members, yeah. but it will butter no parsnips when and, you're in government, will it, when, when the problems it, are upon you? And it's out of touch with the public who overwhelmingly want, do want radical action on, on tackling climate change and do support renewable energy. So you know, it has been bizarre listening to Liz Truss sort of railing against solar farms and, you know, uh, and, and just generally, you know, uh, uh, wind turbines and things like this. When these are generally speaking, pretty popular with the public and, as you say, are essential to dealing with the biggest crisis facing humanity at the moment. Yeah. Uh, Graham says, this is kind of more of a, an economic reflection, I suppose. It's worrying that Truss is being advised by Minford, Patrick Minford. He was one of the architects of Thatcherite monetarism, also a prominent backer of Brexit, which, of course, Liz Truss uh, opposed at the time. But uh, as Graham says, Minford is one of her backers and very much, uh, if you like, a traditional sound money, conservative, tax-cutting, balancing the books kind of conservative. And any of us who lived through the recession of the late 70s, early 80s will know that that is a... that's a pretty hefty dose of monetarist medicine to take. Well, yes, and Truss is, was, has been asked about um, her tax plans, was asked, could she name, this was a, a couple of weeks back, if she could name a single leading economist who agrees with her tax plans. Mm-hmm. And the only name that she could come up with was Patrick Minford. And Minford, as you say, you know, yes, she, he's from that era, but he's also somebody who predicted that leaving the EU on a hard Brexit would boost the economy by £135 billion a year. We, we wait in earnest to see if that's going to happen, but so far there doesn't seem to be much evidence for it. Uh, Andrew Martin asks an interesting question, uh, Adam. He says, I wonder if we'll ever find out how many of the Tory party members decide not to vote because they don't like either of the candidates. There seem to be so much support for Kemi Badenoch and other candidates that surely there are some that are not satisfied with the choices. I think overwhelmingly that that is the case. Um, and there's a lot of anger among Conservative Party members that, that Johnson is, is out at all. There was that campaign um, from some of his supporters to put him on the ballot paper, which obviously was, was not going to happen. But but uh, I think, yeah, I mean, it's something that has been picked up a bit in the polling, but also generally, you know, listening to some of these debates and listening to contributions, there doesn't seem to be a massive amount of enthusiasm from Conservative Party members for the choice that's being put in front of them. Um and you, you saw that in the early stages of the contest as well, when there were lots of candidates. There was no kind of clear leader among Conservative Party members of which, and it tended to shift from one candidate to another, because none of them really sort of were clear sort of standout candidates. And I think that, that again, points to when you've been in government for, for this long and when you've had as many leaders as the Conservative Party have had uh, since 2010, is you kind of sort of run out of good candidates and... I think that's pretty much what we're seeing. Yeah, although I'm guessing the people who liked Kemi Badenoch would be more likely to favour Truss, wouldn't they? I mean, Badenoch was yes. uh, perhaps too right wing for Liz Truss. I know. Well, she—I mean, she was she was asked about um, Badenoch yesterday on GB News, Liz Truss, mm. and, and she did was full of praise for Badenoch. So I, I imagine we'll, she is somebody who we'll see a lot more of in a in a trust government in, in some form or another. Yeah, it, it's. 
strange, isn't it? it? It might be difficult to see Sunak in a trust government, although she kind of seemed in one of the debates to hold out the olive branch to him. Yeah. I wonder if it's, if it's all become a bit too bitter now and, and he almost represents, you wouldn't have thought this necessarily at the start of the contest, but now he seems to almost represent a different wing of the Conservative Party. He doesn't represent the, if you like, the, the One Nation wing of the Conservative Party. Mm. I think most people would still regard him as quite a dry Tory, but clearly not as dry as Liz Truss. And there's been a lot of bad feeling, ill feeling between Oh, a huge amount. I mean, and Truss Truss and Sunak have both been asked uh, during these hustings uh, whether they would have the other other candidate in their cabinet and whether they would serve in the other candidate's cabinet. And both have said, oh, yes, of course we will. I think that's pretty hard to see happening, really. Mm. Uh, Just... The, the sort of, I mean, I'm sort of signed up for press releases from, from both of their campaigns. And it's just a sort of constant trail of sort of borderline abuse, really. I mean, yes, yesterday we had a, 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 and these aren't background briefings, these are on the record statements. And yesterday, Liz Truss um, sent out a statement accusing Rishi Sunak of being a socialist who is practicing the old fashioned Gordon Brown style politics of envy. You know, <laughs> and never cut a tax in his life and would push the UK into recession. Mm. Thing to say about any fellow conservative, let alone someone you've served in cabinet with. And then we had, within minutes, we had a return sort of volley from Rishi Sunat's campaign in which he accused Liz Truss of having a serious moral and political misjudgments and who would cost the Conservative Party the next general election. I think it's pretty hard to see that either of these candidates would willingly serve, uh, they would sort of make, you know, sort of uh, hold hands and make up after after this this has happened. I think I think that's for the birds. I think Sunak will be uh, on the back benches and will be completely out of it after this contest is over. Yeah, I mean they've clashed over tax cuts. What are the other key differences? Would you say between them in terms of hard policy? Well, yes, say tax tax cuts. Um, also, uh, in terms of uh, concrete action for people in paying energy bills, uh, Sunak has been a lot stronger on that. Um, but apart from that, there's, there isn't actually a sort of huge ideological divide. And actually, even on tax cuts, I mean, if you actually drill down into it, Sunak is also promising tax cuts. Yeah, just that he's promising them after inflation has come down. Um, and uh, that is a significant difference, but it's not like there's this huge kind of ideological divide in this context. Actually, you could argue that there should be a huge ideological divide. You know, the government's been in power for a long time. You just have the prime minister being ousted and, you know, you need to renew yourself before a general election, which looks quite difficult to win. You'd expect to be hearing some radical ideas and some different from both the different ideas from both the candidates about how to do that. And instead, we've just had this, you know, sort of them in their comfort zone talking about things like Rwanda and fracking and grammar schools and gender neutral toilets, which they largely agree with each other about. And there's the sole point of difference seems to be they are tax cuts, which yeah. is. And, and as you say, I mean, Sunak, Sunak by instinct, and I don't think anybody would seriously deny this, Sunak by instinct is also a dry conservative. He is a tax cutter. That would be his aspiration, even though people will say we've got the biggest tax burden for 70 years. I think his political instinct is to be a tax cutter. But as Chancellor, he has had to deal 
with the very real world problem of the pandemic yeah. and the massive help that was needed simply to keep the nation going during particularly the, the two worst years of the pandemic and then subsequent to the pandemic dealing with the fallout from the pandemic particularly in the NHS so it, it's not as though he is anti-tax cuts by any no, measure no. but but as I, as I mentioned earlier you know he's probably been closer to the seat of, of having to make those difficult decisions difficult for a Tory anyway of increasing taxes because it's what the nation needed at that particular time no I mean he is a pretty by instinct a pretty bog-standard conservative politician who is in favor of of a small state and low taxes um but as you say any government in this situation where you have covid and and brexit as well um is in a situation where you do have to find the money from somewhere and you can either find it from borrowing which they are doing a lot of as well or you have to raise taxes and i think anyone whoever had been chancellor during that period if it'd been liz trust during that period she would have done pretty much the same so i think yeah the trust campaign is being pretty disingenuous about this whole issue really mm -hmm. trust likes to channel her inner margaret thatcher doesn't she people have pointed out that there have been numerous photo opportunities where she has funnily enough appeared in clothing almost identical to iconic <laughs> poses of the Iron Lady, not least the time when she was uh, pictured in a tank like Thatcher had been. Uh, on, in terms of serious politics, though, you know, as Foreign Secretary, she's had to deal with the Ukraine crisis. Is she seen as somebody who would pursue Johnson's strategy of avid support for Ukraine? Is there any difference between her and Sunak on that? I don't think there is. A, I mean, some of the briefings against Sunak has been that he was resistant on uh, taking a stronger line um, on Russia as as Johnson did. Um, it's not clear to me how much of truth there is in that. Um, but I think it would be difficult for any incoming prime minister to to sort of move away from the position that Johnson did take on, on Ukraine. So I don't, I don't think that's, that's a huge divide in the contest, really. And in terms of how the papers are lining up, I mean, the, your traditional Tory right-wing papers, the Mail, the Telegraph, the Sun... The Express all seem to be lining up dutifully behind Trust. The Evening Standard, of course, uh, run by uh, Egveni Lebvedev, good friend of Boris Johnson, Baron Lebvedev of Siberia. They've come out, I think, in support of Trust as well and had a big double-page feature uh, with her yesterday featuring an exclusive interview. So all the usual suspects, as it were, in the print world have come out in favour of trust as, as far as I can tell. Yeah, I mean what tends to happen in these contests is when it's, I mean in the, in the early stages when it was still unclear um, Sunak did get some endorsements um, from some of the papers, uh, I think the Times endorsed him in the early stages of the contest before it was clear who the two top two were going to be, but once it becomes clear who those top two are and who's going to win among those top two as it is now overwhelmingly clear, what always happens is that the conservative supporting papers row behind the candidate who's going to win and that's what we're seeing mm. uh, this isn't a sort of principled decision of, of which of these two candidates they think will be best for the, they, they just don't want to be on the losing side of the argument and they want to uh first because it's it's it doesn't it shows that you don't have any power if, if you back a candidate's going to lose but also it gives you access uh, to 
to that politician when they become prime minister. And I think in, in some cases, that's the sort of the sort of the main thing they're concerned about. Yeah. A couple of other things before we go, Adam, I appreciate your time. But here we are talking about who will be the leader of our country from September the 5th onwards, albeit that the electorate is consists entirely of Conservative Party voters. Where's the NHS in all of this? I would say that behind the energy crisis, which is going to rumble on, it's not going to disappear because people are going to have massive bills to play for the foreseeable future, and they'll be looking to government for help on that. But the NHS, to anybody who experiences it, is in crisis. You will know if you have been to your local A&E department. You'll know if you've called an ambulance. You'll know if you've simply tried to book a GP appointment. The NHS after more than a decade of underfunding by the Conservative government, is in a state of absolute crisis. Where is the NHS in this debate? Yeah, as you say, waiting times at A&E are going through the roof. But even if you just want to book a, an appointment at your local GP, it's next to impossible. I mean, I, I have to wait. If I, if I try and book anything, I have to wait at least a week. And it's a real struggle to actually even see anybody in person. Is it? Um, it's it's a it's a real problem, and it's it's somewhat being hidden at the moment because we're in the middle of summer. Uh, most people's health is better in the summer, but I think when, once we get into the the winter, uh, and particularly, it's going to be made worse by the the um, the energy crisis because people are going to be not going to be wanting to heat their homes because of the absurdly high cost of of uh, fossil fuels. So people are going to be getting more ill. The waiting lists are going to be backed up even more, and it's going to be a, a huge crisis. And of course, the energy crisis also affects the NHS as well. Um, we're also, and we're going to have this situation where all, all of these these crises merge into what into one. We, you know, the, the the NHS has got a real struggle employing people at the moment. Um, Brexit is, is a big part of that, and that's going to get worse over the winter. So we could have a a serious crisis, and the government now should be in real sort of crisis talks about what they're going to do about it and and starting to prepare and starting to bring in action now. And it's, you know, it's crickets. We're not hearing anything from the government. Um, Johnson has been missing in action. Sahawi's been missing in action. Um, what What is the government doing to prepare for something which which could be a real disaster and could could cause, you know, lots of deaths? And let's be, let's be honest about it. Lots of people mm-hmm. die this, this winter yeah. be, because the government isn't preparing or doesn't appear to be to putting the preparations in that they need to be putting in place yeah i think i read that something like twenty two thousand people a year die already yeah because of conditions related to their inability to heat themselves properly i mean that's a, that's a lot of people Twenty two thousand one is clearly too many and that is only going to intensify if people can well you'd expect it to be a lot worse this winter yeah i mean absolutely but on the nhs i mean again we you know fairness we should say that in the last few days it's been revealed that the number of people waiting more than two years for routine operations, this is in England, has fallen from 22,500 to fewer than 200. So these waiting more than two years. There has been improvement. So, you know, let's recognise that. But more than 6.5 million people are waiting for hospital treatment. It's like one in 10 of the population. One in 10 people who've been told you need an operation, but who are currently 
not having that operation. I mean, yeah. that, that, that's a crisis. One of the measures that the candidates have discussed, and I know Liz Truss in particular has talked about this, has been restricting the rights of what they call militant workers, people like yeah. the rail strikers, for example. Again, very much a back-to-the-80s feel about that, mm. clamping down on the right to strike, clamping down on the right to strike in essential services and so on. These are very different times to the 1980s. In the 1980s, because of the recession, which you can argue was engineered by Margaret Thatcher and the the whole monetary philosophy that was dominant in economics at that time, or certainly at the top of government, you had a vast pool of labour. You had people who were desperate for work, two million odd unemployed. We don't have that situation today. You, it, it's much tougher to bully workers and say, if if we sack you because you're striking or we try and prevent you striking by bringing legislation and in the end of we'll sack you if you don't obey the law because there's a whole reservoir of people waiting to take your job that isn't the case at the moment massive labor shortages across so many sectors you've mentioned the nhs you can't just get rail workers you can't get people who are able to walk the track for network rail and check on signals, for example. You can't just kind of say, well, if you if you don't go to work, we're going to sack you. Well, you, What can you do? The, 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 the levers that you can use against striking workers now, whatever the law says, are much likely to be weaker than they were in the 1980s. Yes, it's not going to work. And as you say, we're close to you know, what, what, what is known as you know, full employment in the UK. Um, and so you're not in a situation where you can, you, you, you can sort of... Uh, yeah, take that. Yeah, there is there, there is going to be strike action, and and there's also a situation where over the last ten years, people's wages have flatlined and actually decreased, and so there's a lot of sympathy with with people going on strike, and there's there's people going there's parts of the economy going on strike which have never been on strike before, and so you can see from the government's perspective when they've been in power for this long and and public sector is starting to deteriorate, um, that it's it makes sense to try and sort of whip up scaremongering about striking trade unions but it doesn't really work when there's a huge amount of sympathy among ordinary working people to the situation that nurses and teachers and and people right across the public sector are in where their wages have, have gone down in real terms over the last 10 years so it hasn't these attempts to kind of demonize strikers have actually kind of backfired and we've we've seen a huge amount of support for um trade unions and and that's the emergence of sort of celebrity celebrity trade union leaders like Mick Mick Lynch who have really sort of captured public imagination talking about some of these things. So the sort of levers that a conservative government has got to kind of uh, sort of create, demonise its enemies and sort of distract the public aren't really as effective as they they would have been in the 1980s or, or 1990s. Yeah, no, I think that's a really important point about union leaders. People like Mick Lynch, for example, and I've I've done a podcast about the demonisation of Mick Lynch because there has unquestionably been a an effort to make Mick Lynch out to be the kind of the Derek Hatton, the Arthur Scargill of the twenty mm-hmm. twenties. But times are different, and Mick Lynch is different, and there's an a. a an extent to which Mick Lynch has become a bit of a, a national icon, albeit that striking rail workers inconvenience the public. Yeah, and the you know the situation in, in the eighties was was quite different. The sort of coal mining industry, you know, yes, they were 
treated terribly by government and the sort of the as you say the the sort of crisis was engineered by Margaret Thatcher's government to a certain extent. But that was an industry that was on the decline anyway. That's not the situation we're facing now. The people going on strike are these are essential public services that we all use and we can all see are really going through the walls and aren't being supported in the way that they should be. So I, I just I just don't think it's it's an effective lever for the government to try and sort of play the sort of anti trade union card. Um, because I think the, the public mood is really going in the opposite direction. Adam, it's been uh, great to chat with you. We'll uh, watch the developments over the summer and see who is elected Prime Minister. If you want to support the work of uh, Byline Radio and the Byline Times podcast, please consider taking out a subscription to the Byline Times. Go to our newsbreaking website, bylinetimes.com. That's bylinetimes.com, and you'll read much more from Adam in the Byline Times as well, our political and Westminster correspondent. Adam, thanks very much indeed. We'll see you again soon. Cheers now. Take care, mate. Cheers.